Blog Talk Radio. Everybody, um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, you're listening to Corrales Radio. Uh, my name is Jeff Godbold. I'm the host, and uh, we've actually got a pretty fun show for everybody today. Um, uh, we've actually got uh, Steve Volk coming on. Now, Steve's probably one of two what I would consider big name uh, basin uh, breeders in the United States. Um, but you know, in all actuality, Steve's pretty much known around the world um, because he does a lot of business uh, shipping animals overseas. And um, he's got probably one of the nicest uh, collections of Amazon base and emerald tree boas, uh, otherwise known as Corrales uh, eye, um in the world. And he's also got a pretty incredible uh, breeding facility, which he has uh, several pictures of on his website. But um, before we get into uh, bringing Steve on, I do want to let everyone know that uh, Corrales Radio is brought to you by Reptile Basics Incorporated. If you guys haven't had a chance yet, make sure you reach out to uh, Rich over at uh, Reptile Basics. Let him know that Jeff over at Corrales Radio sent you. He can get you set up with any of your husbandry needs, whether it be disinfectants, um, just uh, applies for your cages, um, substrates, 
Um, he makes uh, an incredible product. If you're looking at, uh, you know, PVC uh, material, he makes an incredible rack and cage. Um, so uh, reach out to him, and uh, he'll get you all squared away. But um, anyway, things are going pretty good uh, for me uh, personally. Uh, I've got a couple uh, Amazon tree boa, uh, nice uh, females that were bred by uh, tiger uh, male, and then another one that was bred by a patternless yellow male, and another that was bred um, by a calico male. So I've got some uh, girls that I'm, you know, crossing my fingers will drop here in the next 30 days. One is uh, definitely gravid, but she's kind of approaching that 160-day mark, so she's given me a little bit of uh, anxiety. But uh, hopefully uh, it's just me uh, being a little nervous and I'm sure nature will take its course uh, when she's ready. So uh, without any, uh, any more waiting, I know you guys are excited to get uh, to hear from Steve, so let's bring him on and uh, get started. Steve, how's it going? Having me on. I'm uh, looking forward to this, uh, the next hour, hour and a half. Great, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, glad we could sync up with our schedules, and, uh, you know, Sunday afternoons are always kind of a, laid back time so um what better to do than uh talk talk about basins so um if you could give maybe the uh the listeners a, a brief um explanation of kind of what brought you to working with uh basins exclusively uh, that would be great uh yeah you know uh I've, I've had reptiles uh pretty much my whole life uh and you know bred some of the more common pythons over the years and had the large snakes and I always wanted, you know, always had a very keen interest in uh, arboreal animals. Um, and, you know, when I was uh, growing up and you go into the pet stores uh, and some of you guys may remember this, you know, you'd see uh, an Amazon basin or an emerald tree boa. They were like $5 animals. They were oftentimes pretty mean and, you know, the pet store would always tell you, don't bother, nobody's been able to keep these alive, and so on. And, you know, I've been uh, breeding them now for uh, about 12, 13 years. Uh, I, I had gotten some of my original stock from uh, guys like Tony Nikolai and Paul Miles, uh, who, you know, Tony Nikolai really uh, was kind of the pioneer in uh Emerald Tree Boys and Amazon Basins. And then, you know, Ed's done a fantastic, Ed Marino's done a fantastic job too, really. Um, but I think, and I think Ed would agree that uh, Ed and I, we, we kind of stand on the shoulders of the work that Tony Nikolai did uh, some, you know, 15, 18 years ago, you know, with working with um, uh, imports. You, you, you know, back then you could import basins and emerald tree boas you still import emerald tree boas but uh, I think things are pretty well closed off for basins and uh, you know just over the years you know we've been focused on improving the breed and uh, you know not, not so much designer stuff as uh, just breeding for specific traits that's a long answer um, I got uh, you know, uh, fascinated by uh, Amazon base and emerald tree boas just because of their size. You know, they're a uh, pretty good size uh, arboreal uh, 
snake, but also their beauty, their disposition, their, um, you know, over the last 13 or so years, you really get to know them and their personalities. They all have different personalities. Uh, My longer-term captives know me. Uh, You know, when I go into my facility, it's, it's so cool to see their reaction, see them wake up and watch me. If I bring in a stranger, even my wife, uh, if she comes in to my breeding facility where my adults are, you know, they'll, or they'll tuck their heads and uh, they really get to know you. They get to know the routine and they're, they're just a fantastic animal. And, you, you know, I've got a lot of, them. Uh, don't ask me how many, cause I'm not sure, uh, you know, cause having babies and you raise babies up and then they go, but I've, I've got a load of them, you know, um, I don't know, maybe, uh, 50, 60, 65 uh, animals, and I don't get around to handling them. Some I may not handle for uh, 12 months. Always, you know, if someone has a hanging tooth or, or there, there's some reason that you have to interact with the animal, they're always just uh, dog tame, and I really appreciate that. But, you know, yeah, of course, definitely, at night they're... Definitely. They're savage feeders. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and it, but you yeah. know, on the other hand, you know, the lights go out and it's uh, feeding day. Uh, they're absolutely savage feeders, as you know. Yeah, no, that's one of the things that I guess they probably share with similar different species. So, you know, for some of the people listening, they probably don't know. They they don't really know the difference between, um, you know, the the basins and the northerns except for pattern. So what are a few differences that we can go ahead and, um, you know, tell everyone right off the bat? Well, I think that the uh, in general the Amazon basin uh, is a, a larger animal, has a, a cleaner uh, white pattern. You know that. The uh, emerald tree boa tends to have some of the gray mixed in with some of the white. Uh, there's a different build too to the to the animals, um, and there's a difference in temperament. You know, the for the most part, uh, basins are super uh, calm, and uh, you can really trust them. Uh, where an emerald boa can be a little ornery at times. Um, there, I think there's a lot more variation in uh, in terms of the the white pattern. You know the uh, the diamonds and the long crossbars and then the, the snow snowflakes and the barbed wire uh, on on the basins. And I just like them a lot. I just like them a lot more. Right. I've actually only had um, a lot of my Friends keep emeralds, but I've only really had one in my facility uh, ever, and, and uh, bit me a few times too. I mean, because I I was, you know, treating it like a basin. Yeah, so that's one thing I have heard about these guys that despite the large size, they are a much more calm uh, species than than. Um, the their, their northern cousins. 
Now, full disclosure here, and I, I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but I've only ever seen a basin in person at uh, was at a Daytona Reptile Expo in I want to say it was 2006 or 2007. Um, guy had a few of them uh, on display at, at his table. I don't even remember who it was, and I remember the green on them. Um, it had like very fine black in between the scales, which w- when you would back up and you would look at the animal just as a, you know, just you know, not close enough to where you're actually seeing the, the black in between the scales, it actually changed the shade of green to, to be very, very unique. Like it wasn't the same kind of green you would see on, you know, a standard green chondro. It wasn't the type of green that you would see on a, uh, on a caninus uh, northern world. Was very unique, and it's something I've only seen with um, basins. Now, again, I've only seen them once in person, so I, you probably could speak better to that than anyone. But don't they have kind of a unique um, hue, like their green color? I mean, I know it comes in, you know, obvious different shades, but yes, I think you're absolutely right. And the cool thing about it is, as they get older, uh, they get uh, the deeper uh, greens, the, the more emeralds, they get better looking. You know, there's a lot of uh, species that, as babies, are really good looking, and then the older they get, you know, the, the colors fade. It's the opposite on uh, Amazon basins. The green gets more, they get more contrasty, more iridescent, and a lot of times uh, the darkness will come in, you know, with an, with an eight or ten year old animal. Now, when they're born, do they do you get green ones like you do with the northern emeralds, or do these only come out in that orange color whenever uh, they're born? Only, yeah, uh, usually they're orange. You know, occasionally I know there's been some cases where uh, they've had green animals, but none, not near the incident that you incidents that you see with uh, emeralds. Uh, and I might point out, you know, you were asking about the difference. Um, you know, on the on the emerald uh, tree boa babies, they're a lot e- because of their disposition. They're a lot easier to get to eat. The, the basins oh. uh, can be more difficult, you know, because they're so laid back. They're just not aggressive enough. And you know, after you have uh, a litter, and then of course you wait. A couple weeks, ten days, a couple weeks for the first shed before you try to feed them, and you know you you do the classic uh, tease feed, you know, because you start with uh, frozen thawed, uh, you know, rat pinkies or uh, mouse hoppers, and you got to go real easy because once they turn around, I mean, uh, and start heading the other direction, then you're done for the evening with that animal. And that's not so much the case with an emerald tree bow. You can piss it off to the point that it'll usually grab something. Right. So now when you're, I obviously want to dig a little bit more into husbandry and, and stuff here in a few minutes, but I'm just thinking like when you're, when you're looking at, um, when you're selecting holdbacks for you personally, like, what are there to go off of besides the the white dorsal stripe? Are, are there certain things you look for that actually uh, transfer over to adult 
put some, you know, they're drastically different, you know, over the course of, the mature, you know, the years they mature, they, they look a lot different as adults. What do you look for whenever you're right. selecting a animal that's above average? Uh, well, you look at um, the, the the length, the depth of the crossbars slash diamonds, because that is one thing that will not change. Um, you'll get a lot of fill in, but for instance, on a um, I've got a lot of uh, animals that have really deep crossbars, and the crossbars, as they transition uh, to their green state. You know the, the crossbars will not grow, or the laterals will not will not grow. The, the, you know the stripe fills in, and the crossbars fill in, but they won't get deeper. So, in, in my case, I look for um, you know diamonds that are the longest, largest, and crossbars mm-hmm. that are the deepest. Um, Interesting. In terms of you know, in terms of the background. You know, I, I prefer the, uh, the the deeper green, darker animals. But you really that, that's really tough to, to on a uh, you know on a neonate on an orange neonate as to what its background color is going to look like. I mean, you have some idea in terms of the adults and the and the line that you're breeding, but you can oftentimes get fooled and get a really light lime green animal. Uh, you know, which isn't to most people isn't as desirable as a, a darker green, deeper that deep emerald. Yeah, I, I'm actually on your site right now. Um, for anyone who's listening, it's AmazonBasins.com. But uh, you know, I'm looking at these pictures of some of your animals, and I, I, and I've also seen some of the ones of Ed's um, where there, you, you have this high black animals, and he's got a lot of these. Um, he's been breeding for white. I maybe I'm just kind of a traditionalist, but my favorite are just the solid classic looks with a nice, you know, moderately thick um, dorsal stripe. Um, have you ever had um, success in breeding animals with uh, less than um, average dorsal stripe and getting um, nice solid dorsals coming from that? Or you pretty much have to start with, I mean, obviously the, the, better animals you start with, the better the offspring will be. But could you, have you been able to refine that trade at all? Uh, in, in terms of the, the width of the stripe, is that what you're asking? Or, yes, sorry. Well, um, in general, uh, what we see, and uh, this is kind of a standard that basin breeders will tell you, is that uh, a third of the litter will be better than either of the parents. It, it just turns out that way. Uh, and then a third of, of the litter will be as good as the parents. And then uh, a third will not, will, will not be as good as the parents is generally. So you, you get better. A third of them are better than the parents, either parent. So you, you continue, you know, obviously there's got to be some point of no return, but it appears that the animals uh, keep getting better and better, at least from our standards, uh, you know, which are uh, high white animals. So that they, they tend to get better as you breed. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. 
yes, that, that does. Because the reason I'm asking is because some of the there have been um, some animals that have come up recently from um, folks that I don't know all that well, and they they a lot of the animals that have been purchased have been animals with um, either a very very minimized um, dorsal stripe or it's been a broken stripe. And and I'm not saying this as a slight to any of the folks that bought those animals or any of the folks that were actually selling them. I'm just curious because I was like thinking, okay, so here's a pair that doesn't have very much of a stripe. If you bred those together, could you get animals that have a nice classic look to it? And yeah, and I think that, the answer is yes. Kind of what what sparked my question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I very mean, interesting. It, just, they're all, fan, you know, every basin is a fantastic animal. Um, and regardless of how it's marked, it's still going to be extremely rewarding to uh, successfully keep an animal, uh, an Amazon basin. And, and I, I have to say that, you know, in the early days, uh, folks had lots of respiratory issues and, and, you know, all kinds of husbandry issues with um, whether it was emeralds or Amazon basins. And we've kind of gotten to the point now uh, where that's not an issue. And, you know, we're still, all of us have reproductive issues insofar as, you know, these things are not like breeding ball pythons, uh, believe me. And even the most successful breeders uh, still have issues where, you know, there's retained ovum. And you may not know that you have that issue for a year down the line or uh, there's various, I mean, we, we oftentimes joke, you know, when we, when I'm talking to my fellow is that if we didn't breed these things, if we just decided we're not going to breed anymore, we're just going to keep them and maintain them for their 20, 30 year lifespan. I don't think we'd have any problems. Uh, but we're now at the point where everybody knows, or at least most um, sophisticated keepers know how to keep these guys thriving. Uh, you know, there's a, a set of rules you need to follow. Um, and, and we're down to just periodic reproduction uh, issues, mostly on the female side. Hmm. What is an average litter size for for these guys? Then, you know, it, I I know that they're slow growers. So, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you typically don't. It's not advisable to breed a female um, under the age of five. Is it five years old? Uh, well, generally, uh, four years would be the minimum that okay. you would uh, want to breed a female. And uh, I try my males at three years of age, and okay. sometimes you'll you'll get a three-year-old that just does a bang-up job with with the girls, and sometimes it may take them till five or seven years old before the light bulb goes on. But yeah, it, it's hard to imagine that you know in terms of the uh, uh, process of natural selection and how the animal uh, reproduces out in the wild. It's hard to imagine that, it, and, and, but I'm sure it's true, 
that out in the wild it takes four years. It may even take longer for a female to be sexually mature. That's oh, yeah. Uh, that's that's hard to to imagine, but I I have to believe it's true because uh, that's what we're seeing I think, in you know captive populations. I I think that um, I wonder if it has to you know this is completely speculative from my end, but like I wonder if it has to do with just certain lineages of animals, whether they be out in the wild or in captivity. Um, if maybe it's genetic or maybe it's just specific to that animal, because, you know, I mean, they're not going around lifting up each other's skirts saying, oh, well, you're all, you're not four years old yet. You know, you can't breed. But um, one thing about the wild animals is they're probably not getting fed quite like they do here in captivity. I mean, maybe they feed more often out in the wild, but they could be just taking whatever they can get. You know, not, you know, maybe it's not the equivalent to a, to a prey that they would get in captivity, so maybe they're just not growing. So I mean, I don't know. I it, it's just kind of I'm just thinking, you know, um, because they do get large in captivity. I and I wasn't really keeping them when they were being imported in, so I don't know what the imports looked like. Do you do you know what kind of size those animals were? Yeah. Um, again, uh, if I can refer back to Tony Nikolai. Um, it, a lot of the animals he was uh, down in Florida. You know, he was down in Florida, and and that's where the Im- most of the importers were. Some of those uh, females were huge, and really? uh, he also uh, had really large litter sizes when uh, when he was actively breeding back in the day. Uh, m- much larger than what we're seeing. You ask what what's an average litter size. And I would have to say, uh, with my experience, it's probably eight to ten um, babies, neonates. And but Tony was getting, you know, in the mid to high teens. Uh, with, Do you think with that's some of those because... imports? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, with some of those imports. No, uh, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think that's because the lines are a little more diverse or fresh back then? And, like, you know, obviously we have a limited pool of animals that uh, we can uh, breed uh, unless we're getting them in from Europe or whatnot. So do you think the, the, that, has, that plays into effect of the, you know, smaller litter sizes? Or do you think it's just we've evolved our husbandry to where we're trying to feed less often and the animals aren't getting as large? Or what are your thoughts on that? I, I I don't think it's a function of the gene pool because we've got uh, pretty broad uh, gene pools uh, in, in our animals, um, and, and you know we're not there's not a lot line breeding going on. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a, a gene pool, a, a genetic, a line issue. Um, and I think that you know we I would think that we feed our animals more consistently than what they do out in the wild there's you know one factor is there's no way to tell how old uh, some of those imports were i mean they could be 12 15 years old Uh, but i don't really have a good explanation of why uh, tony experienced such large litter sizes from his imports uh, that'd be a good question to ask him. I had him actually on the show a couple months ago. Um, I 
got sheer luck. I was able to get a hold of him, and we came on and talked about some of the old days, you know, when he was first uh, breeding breeding uh, basins and emeralds, and um, you know. But that'd be something I definitely would. Maybe I could get a group. Maybe I, it'd be nice if I could get you, him, and uh, Marino on the show, kind of as like a roundtable. That'd be a fun one. You guys could, yeah, you know, pass back and forth your own experiences of what you've seen within your own collections. But um, I did want to ask you one question, and and this is something that I've just wondered. I mean, uh, aside from you and Ed, there's not too many people that are very public about their either successes or failures with with basins. You know, speaking in terms of the U.S. combined with probably what you'd see in uh, Europe. I mean, who, who? How many people are working with these with this species? Like, is it just a, a few, or or are people just trying to stay under the radar? What, like, what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's that people that have been uh, consistently working with them. There's some folks uh, in Europe and Canada that. Uh, Ed and I have supplied animals to that are now having some success in breeding. I mean, you know, you've probably heard me say this before. Uh, the uh, Amazon Basin Emerald Tree Boa is kind of the thinking man's uh, animal. I mean, you've got to really plan and and look long term uh, and be patient. You. You know, we've seen guys that have tried to, uh, as we say, beat the system, you know, raise them up quicker and try to bring it, and it, it always backfires. Uh, you just got to sure. look at this as a, uh, a long-term project, um, and that, that's going to be incredibly rewarding and fun, and you've got to enjoy the, the journey. I mean, if you're uh, – goal is to eventually breed these animals, you will be successful at it uh, if you're willing to uh, put in the effort and, and, and be patient. When I say effort, um, I'm talking, you know, once you get your facility set up, it's, it's more of a patience issue to be patient, patient with the animals and, and your pro- uh, projects. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up a good point. Um, you know, you see this a lot with the scrub python complex. A lot of people get scrubs, um, and some of them are even younger animals, but you don't ever see anybody reproducing them. Um, I I wonder if this is the same situation with basins. I I think that whenever you buy an animal uh, like a scrub python, or maybe this is the case with basins, and you don't stick with it, you ship them off to someone else, it's almost like taking, you know, one step forward and two steps back. It's like starting over that, that clock. They, they, it's like, you know, where if you were to take an animal and raise it from, you know, let's say I bought an animal from you and kept it for the next four years. Or if I was to buy an animal, keep it for a year and a half, ship it to another guy who, who keeps it for a year and then ships it to somebody else. It's almost like, that animal being shipped multiple times may take an extra year or two to reach maturity versus an animal that has just stayed with the same owner 
and had a consistent environment for four years leading up to, to sexual maturity. It seems like, um, I, I mean, I, I'm just I'm just kind of spitballing here, but it, I wonder if that plays in, into part why you're not seeing a lot of these folks have success because you're obviously producing healthy animals. I, I, I wonder. Well, I think that's a really good point. And we, um, you know, I've supplied animals to a lot of folks. And after, you're absolutely right, after two or three years, um, even before they had a chance to try to breed them, you know, they'll move on to something else and, and those animals get shipped out. And, and I think that, I think that is a, a problem, incidentally. Um, I, I think it's, if your goal is to breed uh, basins, uh, you definitely want to start with babies, babies, and and you want to stick with it and, and stay the course, and you will be successful. I know that uh, a lot of my customers that have had a goal that have had a goal of breeding uh, that stuck with it, uh, they've all been successful. That, right. You know, the other uh, aspect here, um, if some of your listeners are thinking that they want to uh, breed basins. The, the other uh, request that we, that I always get is, "Hey, I want to get a trio," and I think that's that's backwards. You actually want to get a reverse tr- a trio. I mean, you you want at least two males to every female because. Uh, in our experience, what we found is not all males breed, or, or it may take them longer than you expect to kick in to be interested in breeding. And, and we have we have no idea why that is. I mean that that's also one of those uh, perplexing things. I mean that that can't be the way things are out in nature. I mean that has to be a function of how we keep these animals. Every, every healthy male should breed, is my point. And that's not the case. It, it's more like uh, 60 plus percent of the males uh, are sexually active. It it just not sure why, but that's just the way it is. Yeah, you know, and I've I've kind of wondered that uh, myself. You know, I think that a lot of folks um, they just get one male and they think oh, I'm going to breed it to multiple females. Well, in an ideal scenario, you're probably right. You know, if you if you are able to time time the follicular development out and you've got a solid male, then yeah, you're right. You probably could do that. But you know, you run a risk, like you said. I mean, it's it you you could have a male that just isn't isn't interested in breeding. Um, you know, it, and unfortunately, it's usually the ones that are like the nicest looking ones. But like you know, you're right. really setting yourself up for for a, a huge weight. You know, if you um, if you do that, I I would much rather have, you know, um, a backup male, and I've needed this, and with other species, um, that because you know what you could, you could get you could get two males. One could turn out to be a dud, but the other one could be a total rock star. You know, and he'd breed a rope if if you put it in front of them. Um, so I think that is something that people uh, do overlook, and it's not just with basins; they overlook it with a lot of different species. But with basins commanding a little bit more of a financial um, investment than most species out on the market, I think that's probably one that might hurt you a little bit more so than 
than uh, than you know if you were just buying a, a a species that's much more attainable. Yeah. So I mean, if you really want to. Uh, be successful and you're only going to have three animals, uh, it should be two males and a female in my opinion. And, but on the other hand, you know, there's some, um, I, I have some speculation. I mean, some uh, ideas on why some males don't even as perfect as we believe that we keep them, uh, that some males don't breed. It could be just the, the density of the animals that we have. You know, these guys are pretty, out in the wild, they're pretty solitary. And it could be that, you know, a male who normally would be a good breeder picks up so so many pheromones that he's intimidated, doesn't want to get in a fight with anybody, not that he's ever going to have a chance, uh, you know, being with another male. And maybe that's why, but that is... A, I mean, there's no way to prove that out, right? Other than to separate your right. animals geographically. Yeah, that's an interesting point. But mm. I've, I've also, you know, I've often thought about that as maybe that's a factor that in my breeding environment that you know when it's breeding season that pheromones are running so high that it's causing some males to be intimidated and not. Uh, be sexually active. I don't know. Just a thought. It's it's female aggression towards males uh, common in this species. No. No, that's that's pretty uh, unusual. That's pretty rare. Okay. Because I was thinking, you know, if that is something that you see, like you see that with white lip pythons, then you would, or maybe all of pythons, you would think, you know, maybe that could be part of it. But you know. Um, you know, especially an animal that's never bred before, you take a, a virgin male who's not really, you know, sure what what to do yet, and that totally is plausible um, when you think about it. And I, I've never thought about that before. You always think of the opposite. You always think, oh, well, if there's pheromones in the air, it's going to spark him into action. Um, but it may have a reverse effect on that particular male. You know, having said that, um with two with two males, there's definitely competition. Right. Um, so, I mean, if you're uh, double teaming a female, you know, maybe the first male was not, you know, he had his shot for a couple of weeks, and then you switch him out with your backup male. Uh, the first thing he does is he uh, covers the cage, uh, tongue tongue flip, uh, flicking everything, and he knows there's another male in there, and that really gets him worked up. So, I, but I think in general, you know, if, if your goal is to ultimately breed basins, uh, I and I recommend this to a lot of my customers that you start with two males and a female. Now, you may want to stagger that um, and start, you know, because the males will become sexually mature a year earlier than the females. So maybe your first purchase is a couple females population of males if you're going to be successful at this so you know since we're already talking about breeding what what would be a breeding recipe for these guys do you do they breed all year long or do you start cycling in the fall and introduce in the winter time and you know hopefully get babies in the in the summer what what would you yeah you know if someone was 
wanting to breed, what would you tell them to do? Like, what's your your regimen? Uh, my, my regimen is to um, start uh, slowly cooling in uh, October, and uh, you know, in January introduce. And so, uh, you know, my low point in uh, nighttime temperature is is actually in January, but I think that um, the most effective breeding I see is in the warm up phase. You know, as you start to gradually warm up in the uh, March, you know, February, March, April timeframe, which makes sense. Um, I used to introduce, you know, in Thanksgiving uh, sort of time frame. That was kind of a ritual. And, and I, I was successful then, too. But I've now, uh, I, hold it all, I hold off until January. I don't want my males to run out of enthusiasm. And I think that the warm-up phase uh, is also a trigger, too, for uh, ovulation. Now, leading up to cycling, are you um, are you running straight twenty four hour temps, or do you offer a night drop year year round? And then when you start cycling, you just lower that that night drop. How are your what are your temperatures during the day and night from year of just main, maintenance feeding and whatnot to breeding season? Yeah, uh, uh, I maintain a a, a twelve degree offset year round, and okay. uh, uh, my peak daytime temperature is uh, eighty eight, and I'm measuring that uh, on the opposite side of my heat panel, so that is a true ambient. And, okay, so your ambient uh, eighty eight. So, yes. So your hot spot's then, got to be uh, 90s, right? Uh, yeah, it it is. Uh, but okay, um, you know, the, and then my nighttime low is uh, it's offset 12 degrees. So I'll see like uh, right. my nighttime low would be like a 76 degrees during during the off season. That's right. Or is that true? Okay. So during breeding season, do you just up? I mean, so I, I maybe maybe I was asking the wrong question. Maybe are you? How do you stimulate breeding? Are you doing it through uh, um, like barometer drops or the barometric pressure, you know, dropping because you're you're misting more, or you lowering the temperature at night below that 76 margin, or are you lowering your daytime temps? How do you do it? I do both. Uh, I, I used to maintain uh, a, a, a consistent daytime temperature, but now I'm I maintain the 12 degree offset. But uh, for instance, if you you know took uh, took a snapshot of my breeding facility in June, my daytime highs would be 88, and and it, it takes a while to get there. You're not going to get there until you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then yeah. my nighttime lows in that time frame would be um, 12 degrees offset, so uh, 76. And then 
my uh, daytime low for, uh, or actually a daytime high for breeding season, like in January, uh, would be uh, 82. So I'll go from 88, uh, and, and in October, I'll start working my way down to uh, 82 degrees, which means that my nighttime low in January is um, 70 degrees. Hmm. Now, now, humidity kind of takes... Go ahead. Well, go ahead. No, go ahead. You um, said humidity. That was the exact... Humidity. That was what I was... You you started talking about humidity. That was actually my next question because I know that hydration is super important with these guys. And I'm not saying... Um, you know, and I know that you use a pretty, pretty consistent uh, rain chamber and misting system in your cages. So, I want to make sure that folks are. That's one thing I think keepers go wrong with, and and I see it a lot with. Uh, you know, I I made the mistake in condros of, okay, so you miss the animal. Maybe it's best to miss the substrate, or or if you're going to miss the animal, what time of day are you missing the animal? Because if the animal's core body temperature is low, and then you're putting all that cold water on them, I think you're setting yourself up for some possible respiratory issues. So what, what do you, maybe you could expand on that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, My, uh, in my breeding facility, I missed three times a week. Um, uh, It's automatic on uh, Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. And it, um, I'm missing the substrate. I'm not missing animals. Uh, I have tried that in the past. Um, and uh, it, the results were not good because of the uh, evaporative cooling effect that you alluded to. Uh, you can really lower the core temperature of an animal and oftentimes wind up with respiratory problems. So I do not miss animals. On the other hand, uh, I will take, I, I use the rain chamber a lot. Uh, it, it's, I find it to be an incredible tool for basins. And it's a temperature-controlled rain chamber. I actually have two of them. Uh, also, uh, you know, there, it was my most recent one was built by Habitat Systems. And I, I use it, for, you know, if I've got somebody that's having an issue shedding, uh, I'll throw them in the rain chamber. Uh, on, you know, it's temperature-controlled. It's 90, 90 degrees water. And I can I can leave... I've got somebody that's for one reason or another has missed a shed, you know, which we all experienced for and nobody knows why. Uh, I, I may leave an animal in there for four or six hours uh, with the water just kind of dribbling and go off and do other stuff. When I come back, I'll have a shed and a bowel movement and an animal that that's pretty happy and pretty well hydrated. And the one thing I've noticed, even though, you know, I frequently change water, you know, and I've got high water bowls. Even with that, I've noticed that when an animal goes into the rain chamber, they will drink for a half an hour, 45 minutes continuously. You can go back and check on them, and they got their head against a branch, and you can see them swallowing, you know, underneath their chin. They just do that for you know, to get hydrated. So the rain chamber is a, a, a source for uh, hydrating an animal. And I, I do think hydration is a huge issue for arboreal snakes. 
and I, 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 yeah, good. No, go ahead. Well, I think that um, when they get rained on, you know, once or twice a day in the Amazon basin, that they're drinking and they're well hydrated. And I think that there's a correlation, again, on the reproductive side, um, where we occasionally have retained ovum, which, you know, gets walled off and infected and eventually requires surgery. I think that that may be a hydration issue um, that you occasionally see in a gravid animal even after she's delivered. And and incidentally, I I put gravid animals in the rain chamber to make sure they're hydrated. As soon as somebody delivers, and I think they're about done, I'll put them in the rain chamber no matter what time of day, night or day, assuming uh, um, I was aware of that they just dropped a litter. And in the rain chamber, uh, more stuff will come out, you know, after birth or whatever. It, it, it's a, The rain chamber is a, a fantastic tool. Yeah, and I, I wanted to I'm, – I missed it, so I apologize if you already said this, but how often are you using the rain chamber with your animals? And does your – I can only see a side picture of it on your website, so my second question is, is, is it an actual kind of like a uh, – like mist nozzles, like what you would get out of what you have in your cages, or is there actually like you have a hose where you spray the animal down in it? Yeah, it, uh, it's fully automated. And, you know, I've tried a, a ton of different nozzles. You know, there's nozzles that you can get that they use at grocery stores for produce and uh, just try to, and then industrial applications. Right. And the best nozzle is that brass thing that when you go out to wash your car before the uh, handles, before the, um, you know, pistol grip sprayers, you had that brass thing when you were growing up that you twist. Yep. I have have two of those. Yeah. That uh, is the best nozzle I've found because, um, and we could talk about rain chambers for hours, but, when you use those um, other types of uh, industrial nozzles, they tend to make a super fine mist, aggravates uh, the animal because it gets in their heat pits. You can see them shaking their head and all mm-hmm. that. So with that brass thing, again, using temperature control water, um, you can control the size of the droplets, right, by, by twisting the nozzle. And so right. I, I go for a, a heavier drop, and it doesn't seem to bother the animals. Doesn't seem to get into their uh, heat pits. And, and, and also, Interesting. Trying to uh, a uh, a bowel movement, you know, a, a heavier drop it doesn't have to be forceful, but just a heavier size drop uh, tends to uh, get an animal going. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, I was just going to ask. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Sorry. before I, I would... yeah, before I um, built rain chambers, um, I used to use the guest bathroom shower, which that doesn't go over question. real well. <laughs> so I, I just uh, and and. You can do this if you don't want to 
commit to a rain chamber, just build a little uh, PVC jungle gym, and use uh, your shower. Uh, now, you know, when your wife or girlfriend finds out what you're doing and that you got snakes pooping in the shower, that never goes over real well, but that's a different issue. But that, that's also effective if you don't want to make the commitment uh, to building a rain chamber. You read my mind because that was what I was trying to ask you before you moved on. I was wanting to know, like, okay, well, what if someone doesn't have the resources to to purchase one of those, you know, professionally made rain chambers? What's an alternative, and, you know, as a shower one? So you kind of – you totally answered that for me. So, um, we, you know, we kind of naturally started talking about breeding these guys. Um, and so I, I don't want to just move on to something else. Um, I still want to talk about gestation. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about feeding and stuff as well. So uh, before we get into the feeding, could you, um, what is the gestation you've seen with your animals from, you know, I guess from ovulation on or, or post-ovulation shed? Well, my baseline uh, gestation period is 150 days. And so when I have an animal that has a, post-ovulation shed, I'll do the calculation and I'll, you know, put a little tag on the front of the cage that this animal is due, you know, October 22nd or whatever. And that's my baseline. And um, I know that from my setup, it may be different at your house, but from the way I'm keeping them, that uh, that animal will be plus or minus um, three or four days if not right on that date. Hmm. Do your animals continue to feed throughout their gestation? Um, and if yeah. they do, Often. have you, Yeah. I was going to say, if they do, have you witnessed multiple sheds? Oh, no, I've not. Um, you know, after the post-ovulation shed, um, you won't see a shed until, uh, you know, two weeks or so after they have their litter. And yes, I I try I, I, I offer up food during uh, you know gestation the gestation period. My thought is uh, to you know just try to get ahead of the curve and not totally um, emaciate the animal. And and I'd say maybe seventy or eighty percent of the females will eat at some point uh, during that one hundred and fifty days. It's not super critical, but it is, you know, it, it makes you feel good. And it, it <laughs> seems that um, then after um, birth, after the litter is uh, dropped, they're not in as bad a shape as uh, if they hadn't had a meal. So in regards to feeding, what do you, I assume you're offering smaller meals to uh, gestating females? Correct. That's right. A, a, a normal adult female, uh, you know, we feed rats. I, I know the chondro guys are big on mice. Uh, we don't do mice. Uh, these animals are too big, and, uh, right. you know, we, we want to get them on rats ASAP. I mean, you may use a mouse hopper or two, 
uh, for a neonate, you know, to get a baby started. But then the goal here, and before I'll release an animal to a customer, they got to be eating frozen thawed rat pinkies or fuzzies, depending on uh, the animal. Um, but to answer your question, uh, I will feed a adult basin like 125 to 150-gram rat, which is a large rat. It's not a jumbo, but it's, a, you know, a, a large rat. And, and how often are you feeding, like, take a, a, a baby neonate through adulthood? What, what, what's the frequency? Feeding once a month. And, and incidentally, the rat supplier that I'm using right now, that, that's uh, 125 grams. I, I, I stand corrected here. 150-gram uh, rat is classified as a medium rat. So I'll feed uh, an adult female, you know, once a month or maybe once every three weeks, uh, depending. If we're getting close to breeding season, uh, I might feed every three weeks just to, put some, you know, put some extra weight on. The males I feed uh, small rats uh, about once a month. So, you know, you want to keep the males on the leaner side. As babies, do you feed them more on a weekly basis and then you just kind of taper it off after they get to be around it two years old, or, or is that pretty much your regimen even for, as, as neonates? No, I, I, I start out on a you know weekly or every 10 days basis, and then they uh, become juveniles, uh, slow down the uh, frequency until they become full-size adults, and then I'm down to the once a month or once every three weeks. So that's one thing I do want to get out there to the listeners, is, and you kind of alluded to it earlier when you said that they're kind of a, a long-term um, investment project. Um, this is not an animal – this is not a species that you can just beef up like a ball python or maybe a carpet python or whatnot to get them to breeding size. Um, Because they, correct me if I'm wrong, but you could have serious digestive issues uh, with regurgitation and whatnot if you feed them too frequently, correct? That's right. Yeah. So um, anyone listening, patience is your friend with with Amazon patients. It uh, sounds like so. Um, so okay, so we've we've addressed the temperatures. We've addressed um, you know you, kind of how you go about breeding. Talked about uh, um, your um, what you do with your uh, with feeding. Um, before we, I did want to talk about your black project, but I wanted to kind of save that towards the end. I did want to talk a little bit about your caging. I mean, anyone who's been on your website, it, it's fairly common knowledge, you've got the cream de la cream of, of reptile cages. Um, they're all habitat systems. Uh, what went into this design? And uh, maybe you could speak to us a little bit about it. Tell, you know, tell us all the, about all the bells and whistles you've got on these things. Well, I think, you know, the, the major consideration, of course, uh, is the animal. 
and trying to create an environment that the animal will thrive in. And, and of course, we all know that that translates to a, a temperature gradient because there is no ideal temperature for these guys because it changes from time to time. If they just had a meal, they may want to bask. Um, when they're going through the, their gestation period, you know, there's times they want to be cool and, and they'll be on the cool side of the cage. You know, they, they, they do a great job of thermal regulating. You have to just provide an environment that gives them a good gradient. Um, and, you know, I think that I've done that in these cages. The other aspect for me was um, I wanted to give them a variety of uh, perching options. And, you know, I, I use those, uh, the Ron Rondo uh, sculptured, uh, epoxy sculptured perches, which are not only aesthetically beautiful, but uh, they're very durable. And uh, I, I've designed them so they, they just lift out. Uh, because the other thing I learned early on is having this battle with an adult uh, basin to get them off a perch. They really don't like that. It, not that you're going to get bit, but it's you, you know, and because I never do. They just don't bite um, unless you're feeding them. Um, but I wanted the ability to to lift these branches out, and uh, so they fit right in the rain chamber. So I can, as I did uh, yesterday, I can uh, lift out a female. And her, you know, she stays on her perch and, and take her and put her in the rain chamber. Uh, rain chamber has been preheated. And, uh, you know, get her hydrated and then be able to put her back in without having to rip her off. So that, that was another consideration. And I, um, the other aspect on this caging situation is to really stable. really stable. And If you're thinking about getting a basin, make sure to, to get your environment up and running, you know, for at least six months. So it goes through a few seasons or, or you know, it goes through at least one changes to see how it performs. You know what I mean? Now, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, now you, I see you have elevated water dishes in there, which um, I, I assume you just like having them there since the animals are usually perching and not grounded. Um you know, it's right there at their, at their perch height. Um, and I noticed that you, you don't use substrate or, or you use the, the mats. Um, is there a reason or is that just for you to be able to observe what they're, what they're defecating or, or is it like what, what went into that decision instead of not using a substrate? Like yeah. A I, want to, I want to know what's going on and, so I do use those uh, pads, um, you know, they're uh, for incontinence for humans um, mm-hmm. or, or they're puppy pads or, you know, uh, they're, they're fairly inexpensive. They're white. They, they serve a, a, a multiple purposes for me. Uh, the first is the, my misting system missed the substrate. Uh, it, so it missed the pad, you know, on, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And then the pad, um, 
slowly evaporates. And so that contributes to the humidity uh, in my cages. And then I also uh, maintain a you know 70% humidity in the room itself. I've I found in the past that if you try, at least here in Colorado, you know, in the winter times, my house will get down to, you know, 20% humidity. There's just no way to make that up uh, with, uh, unless you drench the inside of the cage and then you get all kinds of condensation and mold and, you know, uh, and then subsequent respiratory problems. So I, I do not uh, allow for condensation in the cages. So if you start with your cage room has, you know, 60 or 70% humidity, then you can, you, you can fine tune, then you can maintain a 70 to 80% uh, non-condensing humidity in your cages. And uh, I, I, I now missed on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays year round in the breeding cages and the humidity naturally is higher during breeding season because the temperatures are lower and, and the cooler air uh, can't hold as much humidity. So the humidity shoots I'm, up in the, in, uh, the wintertime. One thing I think that probably helps in your humidity, and I'm actually really intrigued by the system that you have, um, is your, your uh, plant, the plants that you, you have potted plants in your cages probably helps with the air quality, and I'm curious to know how, what went into that design. It looks like it's just PVC pipe, I guess, mounted to the back of the walls. Experimented with PVC tubing for planters, and uh, now I'm just using uh, uh, just a, a square um, polyurethane. You know, it's about an 8-inch square, and it just hangs on the back. Uh, it's a a system where yeah but yes I use uh, plants in almost all the breeding cages there's maybe one or two there's two females that have lost their plant rights uh, because (laughs) they've been rooting rooting around so they they don't have plants but almost everything uh, else does find it helps stabilize the humidity uh, it maybe gives a little cover, and and clearly, uh, it helps with the air quality. Yeah, the uh, process is great because it kind of it's kind of viney, so it just kind of grows around things, and it will kind of drape the floor and and get all around the the perches. So, um, like I use it with my Amazon tree boas, and they love it. Yeah. I, I do too, and in, in, in my environment, I know it's hard to imagine, but I only have to water them uh, twice a month. Oh, they're indestructible. Like, they, yeah, you could totally uproot them, and they're still going to survive. I just like it. I mean, it's an extra step because um, it's a lot of plants to water, uh, but I only got to do it, you know, twice a month, and also it gives me an opportunity to be very intimate. Uh, with my animal so when I'm going through that process I can hear breathing you know I can and that's another reason for the pads and the white cages you know some folks have uh, want black cages I I, I can't imagine a black cage uh, because I want to 
see everything. If, if somebody has a runny nose and they've wiped it on the side of the cage, I want to know about it. Uh, and the same is true of the pads, uh, uh, that you can, you can look and uh, look at the fecal material or if, if somebody's got a drip or whatever. It, it just uh, gives you a clue. Right, I I like white uh, from a from a just a when I see white I like the look of white more than black, um, but I felt like my my white cages just got kind of gross at, over time. But I've never used Habitat Systems cages, so I know that material is a little bit different. But um, I did like that I that I didn't get water droplet marks all over the cage, which black is horrible for that. Um, I do like having black racks for my or black for my racks because I feel like that additional security. Um, it seems like the black kind of create a little more security for the babies, which I always thought was um, beneficial. Again, this isn't. I'm not speaking from experience with basins, just with other things. But um, I do love the white cages. I think they look really, really clean, very slick. Um, and the cages you have are just really nice and in that the the planter that you spoke of is that something you have um, made for you or do you just go buy them at a at a specific store yeah the when i was using the pvc uh tube planters that's just stuff i picked up at home depot and now these square uh they're square black uh, polyurethane or polypropylene uh, planters, those are pretty standard off the shelf too, and uh, they hang on a, a, a stainless steel screw on the round head, so that yeah, uh, so that I can, if I need to pull a plant out for any reason. The other thing I found is, you know, I leave the plants in when uh, when they're drop about to drop a litter, and mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, when I come down in the morning. The cage is full of babies. Well, you can see some of the pictures. Well, you used one of those pictures uh, on your Facebook I did. Page. Yeah. One of the so coolest pictures. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love taking those pictures. And oftentimes there would be babies in the planters, which is fine. I just reach back there and lift up and uh, bring the whole potted plant out and then coax right. the baby off. Yeah. Now, you – go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's just it, the plants are an enhancement, and uh, I think they make everybody's life, my life and the snakes, happier. Well, it, they're a beautiful species. So, you know, whatever you can do to enhance the – I mean, obviously, if you've got all the bases covered as far as their needs, if you can add something to it to make the viewing uh, more enjoyable without sacrificing what they need, I say go for it. You know, and you're, you're getting the additional security, like you mentioned, so it does actually benefit benefit the animals. So you you're using these habitat systems cages. Um, I know you used to use vision. Um, what made you switch? Since you had a whole room full of vision cages and if you wouldn't mind, you know, obviously both are very good companies. Could you tell me a little bit of the pros and cons you 
seen with both manufacturers? Yeah, I I just wanted to, um, you know, I, I would take a vision cage and outfit it with heat panels and individual thermostats and misting and all that. And um, I had some specific requirements. And the, the thing about habitat systems is they can build anything you can draw, anything you can imagine they can build. And so I, I uh, designed these cages and uh, drew them up, and they fabricated them, and I got exactly what I wanted. Um, that was kind of the reason why I switched. You know, I, and I'm not – and, yeah, they were uh, – they're expensive, but not so expensive if you – when you think about – you know, if you're in this for the long term and you're going to have these for 10, 20, maybe 30 years, uh, then it doesn't look so expensive and, uh, because they're, they're really fantastic. I mean, they're, they're hollow core PVC. They're indestructible. They maintain temperature. Uh, they're exactly the size I want. I've got all the electronics, you know, are concealed and, each unit, I don't know if you can see this from the website, but each unit is standalone, is a self-contained. It's got its misting uh, water reservoir and its individual pump for driving two cages for the misting. Yeah, it's just exactly what I wanted, and I knew I was going to be doing this long term, you know, for you know for years and years to come. So the expense in that from that perspective was not, not so much, not, not, not so great. Right. Now, um, you've been, how long have you been an actual, uh, business that you, it's, it, you're, you, it's Amazon basins is an LLC, correct? Yes. So, so what made you, you know, there maybe the potential of going, um, legitimizing the hobby, I guess, is a better way of putting it. Would you have any advice uh, to those people? Because most of the folks that you see doing it are breeding retics and ball pythons. Um, now, the perspective for somebody such as yourself who's legitimized their hobby with such a niche species is probably something that a lot of the listeners would be very interested in, in knowing any advice or, or any of um, any, any, basically any of your uh, observations that you've learned through experience of, of, of going that route, you know, because it's not easy to do. No, it's not easy to do. And, and I think um, what I would say is you, you can't, you cannot depend on this as an income. I mean, it, it, it has to be uh, a labor of love. Um, and if you make money at it, uh, on the side, well, that's good, good too. Um, but you can't go into it like, you know, a lot of folks did. I think when they took out a second mortgage on their home to buy, you know, bumblebees or whatever. Um, uh-huh. I would not advise that. But if you think you want to do it long term and you and you have the patience and the commitment, um, I, I can tell you this: all of us that breed basins. You know, we sell out every year, and I mean, I don't, I don't take deposits. I don't, 
uh, you know, there, there's the demand for these animals is uh, uh, far exceeds uh, the supply because they're they're not e- they're not easy to make. They're not. So, yeah, you know, you can think of it as an investment, and and if you are patient and diligent in your husbandry issues, that you'll come out on it. You know, because babies are expensive. They they maintain their pricing and probably will for many years to come. And we're also improving the breed. We're taking the load completely off of imported animals, uh, in my opinion. So it, it's all good. Uh, you know, and I ship them all over the world uh, to Asia and throughout Europe. You know, to I've got a master file, uh, you know, CITES permit, and I'm just, you know, made a lot of friends around the world, and, and it's, it's been fun and rewarding, and I've uh, definitely gotten my initial investment back, but I didn't get into it, um, you know, thinking that I wanted to make a lot of money at it, not my day job. It's strictly a hobby that I right. really, really enjoy. And, so it's you know, more like while we're talking about this. Well, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, mean, my, I, I know what I'm going to ask. Okay. Well, my and my ultimate goal, incidentally, is to produce the black animals. I, I want the these ultra rare black Amazon basins to be in uh, everybody's collection that wants one. I mean that that's where I'm headed, and that's my, my number one focus. So I did want to talk about the Black Project, but before I move on to that, just to sum up, is basically, you know, go into it with your love of the animals that you're working with. If, if you can cover your costs and maybe supplement a little bit, then it's, it's a winning venture and you're still enjoying the animals without sacrificing their needs. is kind of what I took away from what you were saying. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and every year uh, I get better. I, I, I'm constantly changing, experimenting, um, you know, whether it's perches or breeding protocol, just tweaking. And I think all of us are doing that. We're all getting better which is good for the species. And, and um, yeah, yeah, I think you'll recover your investment um, for sure if you, if you stick with it. I think you, um, and I'm talking to your listeners, if you really want to breed Amazon basins, you will be successful at it. Um, you know, there's a lot of note. I've tried to put as much information that I possibly could in my website. And I just redid the website, just updated it. Um, I want to make as many people successful reading these things as possible. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've noticed about your site is, um, you know, you kind of did with basins, what Maxwell did with Condros and his website. Um, I'm not familiar with any, websites out there that have as much information regarding um, Amazon basins as your website does. And, you know, 
that's one thing that I really like about your site is you're not only talking about, you know, them as a species, you're also talking about the little things like seeding and, and handling and temperament and you're putting a lot of pictures on your site of your cages, you know, like, you know, and I'm not going to say any names, but there are folks out there that are pretty big name and, you know, they don't, it's kind of like hoarding all this information to themselves. I don't know if that's because they are keeping these things in plastic tubs or because they just don't want anyone else to have success with them because it might take away from their sales. I don't know, but I think it's, it speaks volume when someone who is having success, I mean, these are not cheap animals. So, I mean, you're, you know, you're looking at 2,500 and up uh, for, for a baby and you you're putting all that information out there for people to, to get success with them, just like you're having success. So um, I think that's, that's maybe it doesn't, it, it doesn't go unnoticed. It shouldn't anyway. Um, I've always viewed Amazon basins as kind of like this Holy grail, you know, animal you don't really know a lot about on you know, that kind of thing. And then when I stumbled on your site and I was like, Holy crap, this guy's got all kinds of information that he's put out there. And I'm not, you know, I'll be the first to admit these. I'm not trying to stroke your ego here, but I really do appreciate all of the information and, and knowledge you've put out there for other people to 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 learn from, you know. And I'm sure there are other ways to skin the cat, but uh, you've gone into a lot of detail. And so I, anyone that's listening to this, if you haven't had a chance to go over to Steve's site, you know, take when you have an hour or two to just read. I think it would probably be beneficial if you're wanting to work with these guys. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and you're absolutely right. This is not the only way to um, breed Amazon Basin Emerald Tree Boas. It, it's the path I've taken, it, and some of the stuff I do may not be right, or, there, or hopefully there's better ways, and you know, I try to continuously improve and, and uh, progress. Well, I enjoy going on your site. I still go on it every once in a while when I need uh, my basin fix. I'll, I'll go on there and just kind of peruse the information that you have and, and everything. Um, but I, you know, I do want to, you know, we're kind of getting low on time here. So I do want to fit in some talking, uh, some conversation about your black project that you have. Um, you know, these animals are very unique. Um, there's been rumors that there are different species or maybe they're just a separate locale or maybe it's just a very unique phenotype that pops up sporadically. I don't know, but I was hoping maybe you could shed some light on your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, there has been some speculation that the black animals uh, are maybe a different species. I'm not sure about that. I think it, it, um, I think they're a naturally occurring morph. I mean, that may be more likely. Um, I'm really committed to uh, producing them in volume, and and no, I say volume, uh, but at least getting them out there in other folks' hands because they are the pictures do not do them justice. I mean, I've had. I occasionally, when anybody's ever requested to come into my facility, I always let them in. 
and I get the same reaction every time, and that is, my God, you know, this thing, the pictures don't do this justice. It's the iridescence and, and the how vivid they are. The black animals are just uh, unbelievable. And, and that's, I'm really hoping that I've got two gravid uh, females from the black line this year that are due here shortly. And I've held back everything, obviously, and I've got uh, a group of them that are two years old, and they're starting to look different, but, um, you know, they're not black yet. So still working away at it. Right. So where did these where did these animals originate? Like how did how did the black animal the first possession and bring us to where we're at currently with this project? The the first uh three black animals were imported uh and they wound up in Florida and uh Tony Nikolai uh, had uh, acquired them. They came in as uh, neonates, and they evidently just looked like every other neonate. And uh, uh, Tony had them. I, I, I acquired them from Tony, and I, uh, because I just had females, I bred them with um, a normal male. Uh, and then I subsequently acquired. Uh, some males out of Europe. I actually had to fly over there and meet with the collector, you know, with the keepers, and it took years to get them to release them, you know, to to, uh, finally sell them. And I could never get any straight answers as to where they came from. Uh, And I I think you know that uh, the Europeans are, are, uh, in terms of getting animals out of South America, they have different ways and means. But they have that with getting animals out of Australia too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you so you know the, the routine here. So I never could get any straight answers uh, about their origins other than, hey, it just turned black one day. Um that kind of stuff. So well I've just gotta it's gonna take time. I think. So you, but now you you've produced some of these. I mean, you've done black to black pairings, correct? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, oh, you have. I've done okay. some. I've done black to black breedings, uh, and you know you can see one baby that I produced, but it didn't survive, unfortunately. That's unfortunate. And, Do you have uh, a picture of that one on your on your website? Yes. Um, and and under past projects, let me see. I'm looking mm-hmm. at it right now. Uh, uh, that was. Let me go to what year? Oh, that was 2014. All right, going there uh, now. Project. Yeah. Oh, it's that one that has like the black hue on it. Huh. Like the animal is almost patternless, but it has kind of a black hue yeah. to it. That's right. Yes. Now, do the adults have pattern? 
they, they look they like it's, a, a, I can't tell if it's covered off black or if it's just not there. Greatly reduced pattern on the adults, or sometimes there's a little hourglass here and there. And, and also, um, a lot of the adults, and you can kind of see it in this baby that didn't survive, have no laterals. So the adults have greatly reduced laterals, too. Interesting. So when, what, what's the timeline looking like? When do you think you are going to be able to – do you have any females that are gravid currently or that you're planning to breed this year that are black to black? This year we'll do some black to black projects, and then I've got two females that are part of the black uh, program. They're um, F1s from uh, black females. And so they'll be producing F2s. And uh, they're due, you know, one of them is due in the, in the next week or so, and then a, another one's due next month. And oh, then wow. the holdbacks, all the, yeah, all the backs, um that I've kept from the project are now just, they just turned um, two years old, and they're starting to uh, have black hues, hues on them, and they're starting to uh, get kale. So I may have something going on there, but, you know, there's a myth out there, and that it takes them at least three years before they'll turn black. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at that animal that, link that you yeah. have, and that animal is just, I've never seen anything like it. It's got the yellow yeah, on the head, and, and the, it's just completely black. Right, and that's a, a European animal. Wow. I would try to breed him to everything I could. <laughs> Yeah, and I've got uh, well, one of his daughters uh, uh-huh. is almost completely patternless, but still green. I think You're it's going to take more time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that, that's a really cool project that you have. I, I, I mean, I... I'm a little more partial to some of the, just these classic looks like uh, I'm looking at one, like Marianne to me, it's just an outstanding looking animal. Um, Looking at a few of these on your site, but what you're doing is creating variety. So I know there's a lot of people out there that really, really do dig that black look. Um, And uh, you know, it, it would be interesting seeing once you get that nailed down, how that enhances other phenotypes as well, you know, um, breeding an animal with maybe excess yellow into that to try and increase the yellow scales in between the black scales. I think that would be really cool as well. Yeah, I think yellow on the head is really interesting too. Yeah, that that to me is, is like one of the, the – of that animal link. That's kind of the, one of the things that really grabs my attention is those yellow scales in between the black. Um. Well, that's awesome. I, you know, I could probably go on and talk about this um, much longer, but it, you know, uh, we are kind of running low on time. But um, 
you know, I, I really, I'm really impressed with everything that she's been doing um, to further, you know, the interest and the knowledge about the Amazon basins. I think that um, they, they certainly go unnoticed with a lot of the folks. A lot of people don't even know that, what they are. Um, so, you know, bringing people, um, bringing their awareness to these guys is really cool. So I commend you for that and all the work you've done with your website. I mean, it's, it's super informative. Good. Yeah, so um, is there is there anything that you wanted to talk about, anything regarding, you know, anything? Is there something that maybe you wanted to touch on before we, before we wrapped it up? Well, I'd just like to say that um, from my experience, the basin breeders have been really open, and um, I think they've been very helpful when asked questions. Uh, I think in general, our collective uh, goal is to just proliferate this species and uh, help anyone that uh, needs help or that has questions. Right. Well, you know, uh, Steve, I've known you for a while, um, but actually getting you on the show and, and hearing your thoughts on, on these animals, um, you know, you know if somebody's pretty much the only species they work with is, you know, you know you're going to be able to get a lot of good information out of them. Um, so, uh, it's 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 cool to hear what you're doing with them. It's cool to hear, you know, I had uh, Tony on uh, a couple months ago, and you know, he comes from kind of a different generation than you, as far as, you know, you know, he he's kind of, as you put it, like as one of the pioneers and seeing where they've come since he got out of the game and where they are now. That you and Ed are working with them is really cool to see that that progression and and. Um, yeah, I just think they're absolutely beautiful animals. I think you've done really well with them. Yeah, I think they're the, they are the ultimate uh, display animal. I mean, there's just nothing that compares to an Amazon basin in a on a branch in a in a nice cage. I mean, it's eye, eye candy to the extreme. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking at the pictures you have of them where they're like on these perches and stuff, and it's just so so cool. I mean, there are very few species of, of snakes that you can just stare at. They're definitely one, I think. You know. So, well, cool. Um, is there? It, so, if anyone that's listening, if they want to get a hold of you, if you um, well, what's your preferred method of contact? Oh, you just go to the website and. Um on the contact, you can submit a question or a comment, whatever you want to do. Awesome. And you're going to be, hopefully, assuming everything goes as planned, you're going to be having babies available when? Uh, I've had my first litter, and, uh, you know, I've got more to come. And generally, you know, I like to hang on to them to make sure they're well started, and then we get into the weather issues. So I'll be shipping babies again probably in March. Oh, March. Well, that gives some people to want to put a deposit down and something. It gives them some time to pay it off. <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, I 
I uh, I appreciate the time. Um, these are definitely um, some of the prettiest animals I've ever seen, and um, I look forward to kind of seeing what you do with your black project. And you know, hopefully, we can get you on Crowless uh, Radio for maybe a round two, um, and maybe dive into some other topics related to basins that we didn't get to today. So. Oh sure, that'd be great. Just uh, let me know. Okay, Steve. Well, you have a you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. I appreciate you coming on, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll be in touch. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Um, that was really cool getting Steve on, um, being able to pick his brain. He's got a lot of experience, and has uh, you know really taken uh, bringing what's considered a fairly rare species. He's kind of taking it to a new level. Um, specializing in Amazon basins. He's got probably the largest or one of the largest collections in the United States, if not the world. And um, anybody that hasn't had a chance yet, hit him up. He's a great guy to talk to. He also enjoys uh, um, just answering questions because, you know, he wants people to know about these animals, not just uh, make a sale. So uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. I really appreciate it. If you have any feedback, um, I'd love to hear it. You can private message me on Facebook um, uh, under my name, Jeff Godbold, um, or you can reach out to me uh, through the, the Corrales Radio page as well. I'd be happy to answer any questions. If you guys have any suggestions of some uh, guests or species you'd like me to co- cover, even if they're non-Corrales species, I'd love to know that. I'm always looking for feedback from, from listeners and suggestions because I have kind of a diverse taste of reptiles, as some of you already know. But, uh, again, appreciate all, all the support, all the feedback. Um, if you guys haven't had a chance yet, make sure you check out uh, Steve's page. And remember that Growls Radio is brought to you by Reptile Basics Incorporated. Rich is a great guy. Makes a superior product as far as racks and cages are concerned, not to mention his customer service is uh, above par and, you know, over at Reptile Basics, they have pretty much anything you could need for your reptile collection, big or small. So if you haven't had a chance yet, look them up, www.reptilebasics.com, and uh, they'll get you all squared away. And uh, until next time, you guys have been listening to Corrales Radio. 